The reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Day to uh, all you dads out there. A loud happy Father's Day to you all. Um, I want to join everyone else who's already wished you a happy Father's Day if you're a dad. Um, also, even as I say that, I am reminded that in a, in a gathering like this, um, there probably are, in fact, I would venture to say that there definitely are some amongst us for whom Father's Day is not necessarily a happy day. It is for me. It is for many of you, but for some of us it's not. For many of us, perhaps, Father's Day is a day that brings um, memories of loss. Maybe Father's Day is a day that brings with it a deep sense of loneliness. Maybe for some of you who are fathers, maybe fathers with grown children, Father's Day brings a deep sense of regret over your own failings as a father. and Maybe over strained relationships and broken relationships between you and your Children, and I want to acknowledge that. Not only, uh, I want to acknowledge that before the Lord. And maybe for for some of us, maybe the memories associated with Father's Day are, are are awful because we don't have a father, or we didn't have a father that we can really easily honor. Maybe your father was not an honorable man. Maybe your father was not a man who protected you and nurtured you loved you the way that he was called to. And I, and I want to encourage you today with the fact that the, the God that we worship calls himself a father to the fatherless, and he acts that out in every single way. He is the father that none of us could ever live up to. He's the father who gives everything to make us his own, and then he gives everything to make us who he's always wanted us and has called us to be. He's the Father who gives us everything, and he's the Father who will never leave us or forsake us. And we become his children simply by trusting in his Son, Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you with that, but I also want to encourage you to not experience your loneliness or your regret or your sadness alone. I want to encourage you to find someone to share that with, someone to, to tell about how you feel today. Maybe it's another father, maybe it's someone else. You can wish someone a happy Father's Day and you can tell them about how you feel today. And I'm going to pray in a moment that in your efforts to do that, that we will be a community that respond with words that encourage and words that comfort and ears that listen and love that reflects the love of our Heavenly Father. So, so let me pray for us. God, our Father, we bless you and thank you for the very fact that we can approach you as your children, for the very fact that we have open access to you like a child to his own dad, that we can come to you with everything that is on our hearts. And so, Lord, I bring before you all the manifold needs of this church, needs that I am oblivious to in, 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 in great measure, but needs that you are so keyed into, needs that you are invested in and that you care about. And I pray that you would draw near to us in our time of need. We ask that you would use us as your church to extend your love towards one another. And we pray, Father, that as a result of this gathering together, we would walk out of here with a greater, deeper understanding, not only in our brains, but a deeper understanding in the depths of who we are, that you are a good, good Father. 
that you are worthy to be praised, that your son Jesus Christ is worthy to be followed. We pray that we would come away with that today. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to the passage that Becca just read to us in Ephesians 5, starting at, at, uh, at verse 17, or at verse uh, 15, I should say. And um, as you do that, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to open up your Bible so that you can kind of follow along as we walk through this passage, and I'll, and I'll just share with you a, a brief story that relates to this, what we're going to look at in some, in some way. Just a couple of days ago, about a week and a half ago, I had an opportunity to um, visit a, a, a natural preserve, kind of a nature sanctuary, not too far from here, and go for a little walk. Um, I, had, I, I, I found this place online. I went there, and I parked my car, and I took my Bible, and I said, what I want to do is walk down these little hiking pads, and I want to pray, and I want to find a place that I can sit down and read my Bible and do this in the quietness and the beauty of God's natural creation. And so I did that, but as I started to walk down this path, I came upon this, um, this, this, this board, this news um, bulletin board that told me that I needed to be very careful because there were snakes on the trail, or there were snakes in this environment, and these snakes were, were dangerous, and they could actually potentially kill me. And they liked to hide um, underneath little steps and underneath rocks. And I read that, and I thought, man, this walk is actually going to be a little less... Um, calming and relaxing than I thought it was going to be. And then under that, there was another advisement. It told me to be careful because the, 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 the park that I was walking in was a natural habitat for coyotes. And coyotes, apparently, um, are not all that dangerous. And if you see one, what I was told reading this, I read it very carefully. What it said is that if you see one coyote, what you should do is raise your hands and stomp up and down and act aggressively, and it'll turn away and, and run. And it said if it doesn't, or if you run into a pack of coyotes, it said... Um, it said, go indoors, it said. And I wonder, like, how do I do that when I'm on a trail? How do I go indoors? And, and so I got really nervous when I started walking. And as I'm walking, I find that I'm praying, but I'm also praying that I won't get bitten by a, by a snake or attacked by a coyote. I'm praying for all the things that God has laid on my heart, but I'm also looking and I'm being very careful. And every time there's some rustling of some leaves, I kind of look over there. And every time I come to a rock that looks a little suspicious, I, I look closely at it. And eventually I started to get calmer and I was able to walk carefully and at the same time not feel terrified. I was looking for these blue diamonds that were, that were nailed to, the, to the, some of the trees, and those blue diamonds told me that I was on the right trail, and they kind of directed me back around about a mile and a half or so hike back to my car. It ended up being a wonderful walk, but I did have to walk pretty carefully. Um, the passage that we're looking at today tells us to look carefully how we walk. Verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk. And walk, of course, here is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how we live, how you walk through the days of your life. Last, last week, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to, Ephesians, to the Ephesians, told us that we should walk as children of light, that we should walk in the light and that we should walk in love. This week, we're told a little bit more about how we should walk. Here's what Paul tells us. He says, walk with wisdom, we're going to see, he says, walk with understanding, and he also says, walk with the Spirit of God. With wisdom, with understanding, and with the Spirit of God. And what we're going to see is that each of these instructions are not just, it's not just a list. Each of these is vitally connected to the others. So look at verse 15 with me. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So, so see this contrast that Paul gives us here. He says, walk as wise, don't walk as unwise. And I think the question we have to ask is, what does that mean? What does wisdom mean? What does it mean to walk wisely? And I think the best place for us to go to find out what Paul means by wisdom is to see what the Bible says about wisdom elsewhere. And what we find, if we look hard enough, is that the Bible has lots to say about wisdom. We're not going to look at all of it. I just want to look at this one verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 10. This is a passage that maybe, if you grew up in church, you may have memorized this as a kid. I'll read it to you. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One, knowing God, is true insight. So what the, the proverb is telling us is that whatever wisdom is, here's where it starts. It starts with fearing God. It starts with knowing the Holy One. And I believe what this is telling us is that true wisdom begins with knowing who God is and knowing how we relate to him. Why are we going to fear God? It's because we know who he is and we understand how we relate to him. When we know who God is and we understand how we relate to that God and we understand all that he has done for us, that's the beginning of where wisdom starts. And in fact, that's what the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about. We spent a couple of months looking at it. Paul again and again is saying, look, here's who God is. Here's who you are. Here's what God has done to make you his own. Here's what God has done to rescue you, to give you new life, a new identity, an inheritance eternally in heaven. Here's what God has done for you. And the more we understand that, the more we go to not just memorize facts about it, but experientially understand what that means, and then walk in the light of it, that's how we grow in wisdom. You could say wisdom is learning how to live in light of who God is and who we are and what he's done to save us. There's another way to look at it. Wisdom is living in light of what's really true. Wisdom is living in light of what's really true in all the details of life. And that begins by knowing what's really true about God, what's really true about you, your identity, and what God has done for you. Yet another kind of facet, another angle. I'm trying to say the same thing, just in different ways. Another angle we could look at it is this way. True wisdom is living in the light of the gospel. Because what do we see in the gospel? We see who God is. We see who we are in our need of salvation and what God was willing to do to make us his to make us his children. It's living in light of the gospel. And according to the Apostle Paul, here's one way that wisdom is lived out. Wisdom is lived out according to verse 16, by making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Make the best use of the times because the days are evil. This, we can read this kind of quickly and just say, oh, God's telling us to be like good managers of time. Like, use your time well. Budget your time well. Come up with a schedule. Be productive. Increase productivity. And there's wisdom. I think it's very possible to live a very productive life. That is, to get a lot done and amass many accomplishments and go through many to-do lists and still live very unwisely. I think that what God is talking about to us here has to do in some way with the way we use the hours of of our day. There's no doubt, but I think it goes way beyond that. He's not just saying, manage time well. He's saying, make the best use of your life. Make the best use of these days that you live in now as a whole. Use your life well. Redeem it for God. In Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalmist says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What does that tell us? Teach us to number our days, Lord, so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Help me to understand that time is short. Help me to understand that my time on this earth with the people that you've entrusted to me, the family and the friends you've entrusted to me, the time that I have in this job, in this vocation you've given me, the time that I have in this neighborhood where you place me, all of this is Short. It's a blip. It's like that. So teach me to understand that so that I might live wisely and actually live the best I can in these circumstances you've given me, these temporary circumstances. According to this passage, the days are evil. And, and we could say this about today. We could look at the news and we look outside our windows. We look at each other's lives and we see the effects of evil. We see the effects of Sin and death and hatred and polarization and animosity. We see all of that. 
We're in the middle of, a, of an election cycle. We, it's like all over the place. But it's always been this way. When Jesus says the days are evil, he's not just talking about first century Palestine. And we re- when we read that, we're not just supposed to think of 21st century America. When we see the days are evil, we're supposed to think this is the time in between when Jesus was on earth the first time and when he comes back again. That whole period, those days are evil. Are there beautiful things happening during those days? Absolutely. In one sense, that period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, those, those are the days of salvation. Those are the days when people are coming to know Jesus. They're getting born again to life. But another angle there, from another angle, those are evil days. Terrible things are happening. People are in desperate need of the gospel. People are in desperate need of God. They're lonely, forsaken, dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians says. Live in those days and make the best use of the time. I want to make an application here that may seem a little random, but I hope it's, I don't think it is, and it's something that's been, that's been on my heart, especially given that today's Father's Day. It's not a Father's Day sermon, but here's, a, here's, a, here, here's something for you dads and for parents. I think one of the ways that we make the best use of these days is by looking at the time that we have with our kids, realizing how brief they are, realizing the evil surroundings that, 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 that they're growing up in, that they will continue to grow up in, and we, and we, and we seek to disciple them. Making the best use of the days, at least in one small way, means discipling our kids, loving them. Those kids that tell us, happy Father's Day, I love you. Committing ourselves to lead them to Jesus daily. Not just providing them with moral instruction, and not just, although they need that, and not just providing them with skills to know how to be able to survive, although they need that. There's so many things our kids need us to teach them, right? But I'm thinking of what Deuteronomy 6 tells us to teach our kids. Where God comes to his people, he comes to us, and he says, I'm the Lord. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And and he says, these things that I've just taught you, teach them to your children. Teach them diligently. Not teach them in moments of convenience, but teach them diligently. It's this, he's giving us there. God is giving us one way that we can make the best use of our days. I can say this. I don't think any of us as parents would ever regret putting aside another task, canceling something, putting aside a device, or carving out time in our schedule on a rhythmic, regular basis to talk to our children about Jesus and to teach them that the Lord, their God, is one and that they should love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. And, and they can't do that, so they need Jesus to come and rescue them. None of us will ever regret spending time doing that. I know that in my own experience, what I regret is not doing that more. So I encourage you. I'm not trying to guilt you. I just encourage you, and I encourage myself. Us as a community, it's not easy, but let's do this. Let's commit to do this together. I think that accountability can help in this. We can help each other disciple our children in the midst of the busyness of work and school and extracurricular stuff and the busyness of church. Isn't it amazing that even the busyness of church can keep us from discipling our children? Let's find ways as a community to never neglect that. There is wisdom in that, deep wisdom in that. The Apostle Paul goes on in verse 17. This is the second thing he tells us to do. Not only walk as wise and not unwise, but then he says in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore, because you can't look, because God wants you to walk wisely, here's what you need to do. 
Understand the will of the Lord. Now, what does it mean? How do you often think of the, the, the phrase, the will of the Lord? I know how I usually think of it. To me, it's kind of like Christianese. You know what Christianese is, right? Phrases that Christians always use. We, we bat them around. We know exactly what they mean. If you've been around church long enough, if you don't, you, you, know, you can take like a CSL class, Christianese as a second language, and you can learn what idioms like the will of the Lord mean. Usually, the will of the Lord means um, I'm trying to make a decision. I need to figure out what to do. And so I need to discern what the will of the Lord is for me in this decision. Um, do I take this job or that? Do I go on this missions trip or not? Do I move to Africa or not? Do I... And, and that, those are valid questions, and it's a valid way to think about the will of the Lord. But I think that the Apostle Paul is actually pushing much deeper than that. He's talking about the will of the Lord in a much bigger, bigger sense. It includes that, but it's much, much more. Look at how the Apostle Paul uses the will of the Lord in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The will of the Lord was to predestine you for adoption as sons. His will was to make us his children. That's his will. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says that his will was to give you an inheritance that exceeds what you could ever calculate or imagine. To give you an inheritance as a son because of your union with Christ. That's his will. In chapter 3, verse 10, we find out that his will, his purpose, is to display his wisdom to the whole universe through the church. That's part of his will, too. You see, the, the will of God is pretty expansive. It includes adopting people to make them his. It includes promising us an inheritance. It includes all of the plan of salvation, his whole plan for how he's going to take people like us and rescue us from our lostness and our sins. That's all part of the will of God. And then, what he requires of us and how he calls us to live in light of what he's done, how he wants us to just do life and live out our days, that's part of the will of God too. So, so think about it this way. Think about it this way. The first three chapters of this whole book talk about the will of God. It talks about the will of God and his plan to save people and create a whole new society, a whole new community of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, from every socioeconomic background, from every political background, from every ethnic background, to bring them together into this new community to the praise of his glorious name. That's his will. And then the whole second part of this book, we see that his will is for us to live in light of that. To live in light of the new identity he's given us. It involves repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. It involves the way that we talk. It involves the way that we um, live out our sexuality. It involves the way that we relate to one another in families and in the workplace, etc. In fact, throughout the rest of this book, Paul's going to give us a lot more details on what the will of the Lord is. But I want us to think of the will in that big way and then say, wow, this is true wisdom. Trying to grasp all that and live in light of all that, that's going to take time, isn't it? That's going to take a lifetime of prayer and meditation and living in community with others to, to deeply, truly get some kind of grasp on that big, vast, amazingly wise will of God. You know, in the passage that um, our brothers that, that Chan and Alex preached on last week, in verse 10 it says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I think that's very similar to understand the will of the Lord. It's try to discern what's pleasing to God. Understand his commands, yes, but also understand who he is and what he's done for you. The way we grow in that understanding, I think, is um, through drawing near to God. It's by listening to his word in the scriptures. It's by engaging him in prayer and meditation, meditating on his words, meditating on what we know to be his will so that we will come to a better understanding of those aspects of his will that are really, they just, either, either they're, they're confusing to us or perhaps they're just familiar to us and they're, they're, they've never really sunk down deep into our hearts to really make a difference 
in the way that we live, we grow to discern the will of God and to know the will of God as we expose ourselves to him and speak to him and hear him speak to us. That takes time. That takes a slowing down. No one understands the will of the Lord automatically. It's a process by which we place ourselves before God, make use of the means he's given us, word, prayer, fellowship, the public gatherings, all these means that he's given us, and we take use of all of this, and we say, Lord, use all of these things to help me understand what your will really is. There's a third thing and a last thing that the Apostle Paul tells us. So it's walk as, your, walk as wise, not as unwise. Don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And then there's this third, last contrast. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. You see the contrast again. Don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And, and I want us to, to kind of look at this. I think we, we can come to this verse with some... Um, Preconceptions, and, and I want us to, to come to this verse in a kind of fresh way and see what it's really saying to us. Um, notice the stark contrast there. There's meant to be this hugely stark contrast between what being drunk looks like and what being under the influence of the Holy Spirit looks like. Very different things. It's not that they look the same, but one is drunk on the Spirit, one's drunk on wine. No, they're meant to be very different. Jesus doesn't say, or the Apostle Paul doesn't say, don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Spirit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't be intoxicated with alcohol, but be intoxicated. Holy Spirit doesn't say that. What he does say is, don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The effects of each of these things are very different. Maybe you've experienced personally what, um, what being drunk looks like or feels like. There's a lack of self-control. One is put in jeopardy and puts others in jeopardy. There's a tendency to act foolishly, to do things that you would never do. That's what it looks like, at least in part, to be drunk with wine. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Very different. It's not, it's not a, it, under the influence of the Spirit, it's not a, a lack of control, but but we would expect to see the fruit of the Spirit, which is a growth in self-control. What we see is one who is filled with the Spirit, rather than jeopardizing and putting others at risk, they, they give life and help, and they build others up. To be filled with the Spirit is not to act foolishly, but instead to act wisely, to live out the will of God. And in, in fact, I don't even need to, to list all that because I think we can look at what Paul says and say, here's what being filled with the Spirit, at least in some way, is meant to look like. This is not an exhaustive list of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, but I believe that it's, it's partially, it's a partial list. It says being filled with the Spirit leads to speaking God's truth. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here are some of the, the ways that being filled with the Spirit plays itself out. It leads to us addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is singing and speaking God's words to one another in a way that, that worships God because we're making melody to the Lord in our hearts, but we're also addressing one another. We're building each other up, encouraging one another, consoling one another, pointing one another to truth. You realize that when we read and something just as simple and as mundane as reading Psalm 130, verse 9, we read earlier, that we are engaging in this, this, this activity that the Spirit loves. We are addressing, we're not just reading, I hope we're not just reading words automatically off the screen. We're meant to actually be addressing one another with this, with this truth. God is a Father. He's a father to all that fear him. That's something I need to hear. It's something you need to hear. And we say this to each other through the very simple thing of just opening up his word and reading it together. 
what can be a very kind of automatic, mindless activity doesn't have to be. It can actually be a spirit-filled, life-giving activity. And even as we stand here and sing songs, what are we meant to be doing? We're, we're singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, but we're also proclaiming truth to one another. And some of us, we need to hear it. Some of us, we need to hear it from our own lips. We need to say it. That God is great. That he deserves my entire life to be consecrated for him. We need to hear others as a community making those same proclamations so that we can be encouraged and say, yes, I am part of a people here and I'm finding it so difficult to say, I consecrate my life to you, Lord. I'm finding it so, but I'm surrounded by people whose desire is that their lives would be consecrated to you. Lord, give me that desire as well. And we sing that together as spirit-filled children of God. And God answers and he acts. Worship in song. I've been, I was reminded of this week, and I want to thank the, the worship team for the tireless work that they put in week by week by week to, to facilitate and help us worship God and minister to one another. Worship in song, it's, it's teaching and preaching truth to one another. It's prayer, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's praise. It's also even meant to be lament. We're meant to be singing songs at times that we're, we're lifting up our hearts to God like the psalmist does. We're saying, where, where are you, Lord? I'm, I'm lost here. Deeply needy. And I don't see any hope. Lord, will you answer? Do you see us in our need? We're lamenting, we're praising, we're, we're fellowshipping even as we sing in ways that honestly, I think sometimes is even better and deeper than the ways that we quote unquote fellowship when we talk about the game that I want to watch tonight. And I really do want to watch it tonight. God has in his wisdom given us these rhythms, these things that we're meant to engage in that if done mindlessly, they're useless. But if done under the filling of the Spirit and with a desire to really see them be used for our good, are health-giving and life-giving. And they're beautiful to God. He loves it. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like, at least in part. It looks like thanksgiving. It looks like us giving thanksgiving to God in the name of Jesus Christ. See, the, do you notice by any chance, though, just mention this, the, the Trinity here. God, God says, look, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will give thanks to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ the Son. It's this whole Trinitarian worship that happens. God as a whole is involved. It's awesome. And then we submit to one another as well. We submit to one another. There's a, there's a humility that's brought into us through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Rather than, than doing things from selfish ambition and conceit, as Philippians says, instead we, we, we count others as more significant than ourselves. It's part of what it looks like when the Spirit is at work. Don't you see that? When the Spirit is at work in your family, what do you see? You see people submitting to one another. You see people thinking, like, it's not all about me. It's about what you need. When we see that, we should celebrate it because that's it's totally unnatural. <laughs> you see people submitting their preferences to one another, even submitting their opinions to one another. Not ultimately out of reverence for one another, but ultimately out of reverence for Christ. Because we know Jesus is faithful, I can submit myself to you, Robert. Not because I know you're going to be faithful and you're always going to have my back and you're always going to live up to my expectations of you. I don't know that for sure. But I can submit myself to you and I can say, you are more important than me because Christ is faithful and he's called me to it. And we can do that as a community. John Stott, the old famous 20th century British preacher, said... Those who are truly subject to Christ 
do not find it difficult to submit to each other as well. Paul is going to give us a lot more guidance on what that looks like in the rest of this book. Even in the, the passages we'll be looking at in the, in next week and following, we're we'll looking at what this submitting to one another really looks like. But for now, to end today, I just want to give you a couple of final takeaways, a few things that I want us to walk away with. Hopefully we'll help you. The last command here in verse 18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. I want us to notice that this is not just one command amongst the three. It's actually the overarching command without which we can't do the others. Without the Holy Spirit ongoingly filling us, we cannot grow in wisdom and we cannot grow to understand God's will. It just doesn't happen. Um, Studying will get us to some point. Um, Experience will get us to some point. Intelligence will get us to some point. But we will not truly grow in wisdom and in our understanding of the Lord's will without the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. We can stand here and we can sing and we can speak, like act thankful towards one another. I can say thank you a million times a day and I can try to submit myself to Robert and to others without the Spirit. But that's really not what God's after. Not a kind of just mechanical effort to obey. I, I want my kids to say thank you. And so I often remind them to say thank you. And I teach them to say thank you. But what do I really deeply want? What do you want for your kids? For them to just remember to say that? Don't, I want my kids to deeply to be filled with the Spirit so that God's presence in them actually spills out in heartfelt gratitude. Like, I want them to be grateful children, not kids who remember to say thank you. And that doesn't happen apart from the filling of the Spirit. I want my kids to sing in church. And, and I think that it, it's like hit or miss at this point, whether they're going to sing or not. And so I teach them. I don't just wait for the Spirit to come and fill the... I say, listen, sing, man. Do you want to sing? Why don't you want to sing? Let's sing together. We sing at home. Let's sing here. But more deeply, what I want them to do is be filled with the Spirit so that the presence of God spills over in songs of praise. I want them to submit to their parents and submit their own opinions and interests and preferences to one another, too. But ultimately, I don't just want them to try to be nicer and try to let others go first and... I want them to be so filled with the Spirit that it overflows in a willingness to elevate others above themselves out of reverence for Christ. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want for ourselves? Not just, we don't want to just behave better. We, we want that. And, it's, and the fact is that it's only being filled with the Spirit that really results in singing and thanking and submitting to one another and all of that good stuff. It's only being filled with the Spirit that really results in wisdom and understanding the Lord's will. So that's what we want to be after. And so I want to ask you, is that something, I think some of us, I, I pray for wisdom often, pray for understanding, perhaps you do too. Perhaps you do that, and perhaps you also pray for, um, for, for God to, to help you to understand his will when it comes to making decisions. Or you ask that he'll give you victory over some of these sins that have been entangling you and you've been struggling with. And I think those are good things to ask. We need to be desperately asking for those things. But I want to encourage you and challenge you to ask for the Holy Spirit, for ask God to be ongoingly filling you with the Holy Spirit. Because the fact is, when Paul says here, be filled with the Holy Spirit, there, there's some things about that verb, be filled. First of all, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's an obligation to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's talking to Christians who already have the Spirit, but he's saying, be filled. Be filled. It's an obligation. It's also passive. It's in a passive mood, for those of you who care. And what that means is that I can't fill myself. He needs to fill me. But it's also in, in, in the continue, it, it, it's also continuous. It means it's ongoing. It's be being filled. Pursue ongoing filling of the Spirit. And as I said before, I think the way it comes is as we present ourselves to God and we come to him and we ask. And then we take these means he's given us 
in the word and prayer and in fellowship and in worship and everything, the full gamut of all that he gives us, we engage all of that and we say, Lord, fill me. Second takeaway. I want us to see that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all this that we've been talking about. Wisdom and knowing God's will and, and, and fullness of the Spirit. Jesus Christ walked this earth as a full embodiment of all of that. He's the personification of wisdom. He always knew God's will. Always understood it. The Spirit of God was constantly on him and with him and working through him. Day by day, walking through life, filled. He always made the best use of the time. You ever think about that? It's hard to kind of figure out what that looks like in the minutia, but Jesus Christ didn't waste time. He just, he just didn't. I want to know, I wish, I wish that, I wish that smartphones existed in first century Palestine. Because I would like to know how even Jesus Christ himself could own a smartphone and not waste time. Somehow, he would use it to accomplish everything better and be even... And somehow, he wouldn't... I don't know. Would, you, would he use social media? I don't know. I don't know if he would. I digress. In any case, the point is simply this. He always walked in wisdom. Always, he always gave thanks. He always worshipped from the heart. And yet, the same Jesus Christ, who was a full embodiment of the Spirit-filled life, was willing to die for us. He was willing to, to take the place of people who by choice, and sometimes accidentally, but often by choice, reject wisdom, reject understanding, don't seek the filling of the Spirit, don't give gratitude, don't cry out in worship, don't submit to one another. And he's willing to say, I see you in all of your brokenness. I see how you failed to live out Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. You failed miserably. I have done it, and I will stand in your place, in the place of fools, in the place of the unsubmissive and haughty and arrogant. I'll stand in the place of the drunkard, and I'll take all the punishment for you. So that when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, by faith, he sees my wise child, my understanding child, who's growing in wisdom and growing in understanding and who's growing in gratitude and growing in worship and growing in all these areas. We said before that the pathway of wisdom begins with the fear of God, knowing who God is. And, and I would say just, just one, one, one takeaway from that is that the pathway to wisdom begins by believing in Jesus Christ. It begins by seeing that there's no wisdom apart from him, that our efforts to be wise apart from believing in Christ will prove futile. God says that he looks at the wisdom of man and, and its foolishness to him. The best we can do in our own wisdom is foolishness to him. Third takeaway. Third takeaway. Walking and living the way that Paul describes in this passage, if we walk the way that Jesus, the way that Paul's telling us to walk in this passage, it shines, it shines a bright, radiant light into the darkness. If we walk this way as a community, growing in wisdom, growing in the understanding of God's will, seeking the ongoing filling of the Spirit, what's going to happen is that that will shine a light into the darkness of this world. This past week, I was listening to All Things Considered. I don't know if you ever listened. Anyone listen to All Things Considered? It's a program on National Public Radio. And they were interviewing a guy by the name of Justin Torres. Justin Torres is young, he's gay, he's Latino, and he's a writer in Florida. And he was writing in the aftermath of what happened at Club Pulse, a gay nightclub where, where over 50 people were killed and, and just as many, if not more, were, were injured as a result of a, a terrorist attack, a hate-filled, violent, gruesome attack 
And, and Justin Torres is writing about how he responded in the aftermath of all that. And here's what he said. He said, I think that for queer people, that bar has served so many more purposes than just a place to kind of drink and socialize. He said, it's a place to kind of be transformed. You know, people talk about that gay bar like it's a church, Justin Torres said. It's like a church. It's where we go to be transformed. Then he goes on. He says, it's, it's sacred, that place is. He says, it's people. You go and you worship, he says. You dance. You celebrate. You connect. And, and, and it's sacred, Justin said. And, and I'm listening to that as I drive down 287. And I'm reminded that there's this deep, deep darkness in what happened at Club Pulse in Orlando. A deep darkness in the, the loss of life. People made in the image of God, stripped of life. But then, but then I'm also realizing as I listen to Justin's words that, that there's a deep darkness there as well. I'm struck by, there's, by the deep darkness in his own words. And, and, and I, I don't miss that. Don't miss that. You, you heard how he uses these, these religious words, these words of worship and transformation and, and sacredness to talk about that place where that violence happened. And what he, what he described, and it, it should break our hearts. I think if it doesn't, I think there's something deeply wrong with us if it doesn't, because this means that that place was filled with people who needed to be known, people who needed to be given Jesus, and in, instead, someone who didn't know them hated them and gave them death. Instead of Jesus, they got, they got a hate-filled killer. Justin Torres and the people he's describing are just like any of us in the sense that they're longing for something to worship, longing for something to celebrate, in his own words, they were longing for a place and a way to be who they really, really are. To live in the freeness of who they really are. Longing to be transformed, even, he said. And, and I would say that all those desires were in their hearts for, for such an important reason. They were there because these people were made in the image of God, just like you and I are made in the image of God. And Jesus says to them, and Jesus says to you that if you trust me, if you trust him, I will show you the true you. And I will give you a new you. Jesus says, you were made to worship something. There's no escaping it. Worship me. I won't leave you empty. He won't. Empty and ridden with confusion and hungover and wondering about what to do next. You were made to find your identity and your satisfaction in him, to worship and celebrate him, and he calls you to do that. And, and he won't just affirm any of us in the life that we're in. He won't just affirm you in whatever life you're living. He'll do so much better than that. He will bring true transformation, and he'll call you and he'll empower you to walk in the light, to live life the way that he knows you were meant to live it. And all we need to do is simply be desperate enough to, to trust him and follow him. This is the final thing I want to share with you today, and then I'll, I'll stop, I promise. If you are wrestling with sin, whether it has to do with sexuality, whether it has to do with same-sex attraction, or any, any number of sins, but those are the ones that God's really just placed on my heart through various means and various people. If you are wrestling with, in those areas, would you consider, I want you to, I want you to hear this as, as an invitation and not a, not a command, but would you consider coming and talking to me about it? I know you don't owe me that, 
If you're struggling sexually, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction or any other, you don't owe me that, but I invite you to do that. And, and if not me, then someone else in this community, would you do that? Someone that you believe will listen or that you hope will listen and wrestle with you and, and humbly speak truth and love to you, would you please be willing to do that? And I, as I say that, I realize that that is a huge request and it involves so much risk, but I invite you and I believe I can invite you in the name of Christ to do that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, to bring your struggles and your sins and confusion into the light and to seek help and to allow others to prayerfully point you and to point one another to, to this Savior who offers real hope. And I ask you to do that because I long to learn from you also about the ways in which I and we as a church can best help you fight sin fight for repentance and faith. I started by saying that um, I went on this walk in the woods and I somehow escaped death and I made it home. And, I, and I'm, I'm struck by the fact that that walk would have been a little bit easier if I had someone with me walking alongside me and so I want to remind you of something that I think we've said before, but I want to remind you of it again and again and again. We cannot be a community of people who, who walk and stumble and fall and crawl in isolation and in silence and then get together and say, oh, I'm walking just fine, doing well. A couple of little stumbles here and there, but I'm fine. I'm good. That's not God's, God's design for your good. It's not God's design for us. It's not his design for displaying his wisdom. We can't, and we can't be a community that says, look, my walk is my business, your walk is your business. One of the, one of the ways in which God calls us to submit ourselves to one another is to actually say, your problems are my problems. I submit myself to you to even make your problems mine. They are not an annoyance to me. They are not a distraction to me. They are not something that I wish you just keep to yourself. I want to hear them. And if I have no words, then I will listen and we will go to God together. And if I have words to speak to you from God, I will speak them in love to you. Find someone and ask them to walk with you is what I'm asking you to do. Let's pray. Our God, you've given us a high calling here to walk wise, to know your, your, your will, and to be filled with your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you give us Christ who embodies all of that, and he's not just an example. He's a substitute. He did it in our place so that now we are freed up and empowered to walk this way too. So would you, Lord, fill us with your spirit? And would you, Lord, reveal your wisdom to us? And would you help us to more and more deeply live in the light of what we know to be your will and grow in understanding of your will? And help us, Lord, to have the courage and the humility to do that together. In Jesus' name, amen.